Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for our webinar entitled, Why Now is the Time to Gift Assets at Lower Valuations? I'm Tom Anino, moderator of today's webinar. A few items before we get started. Quick recommendation for the audience out there. We have found that the best way to get the highest audio quality is to use headphones to listen to the presentation. We will be taking questions today. You can ask them at any time by typing them into the questions section of your Zoom Q&A dashboard. Also, we'll be recording the webinar as well. The recording will contain both audio and video of today's presentation, and the clip will be available for download in the next couple of days in the perspective section at dgccpa.com. Finally, just a few quick words about DGC. We're an accounting and business advisory firm specializing in services for privately held businesses and individuals. We provide tax, audit, accounting, and advisory services, which include valuation, litigation support, forensic accounting, succession planning, cybersecurity, and transaction advisory services. So now let's meet our panelists for today's presentation, beginning with Laura Barujan. Laura is a partner in DGC's private client group. Her focus is on income tax, estate, and give tax planning for her clients. Laura is an accredited estate planner and a chartered advisor in philanthropy. Kim Train is a partner in DGC's advisory practice. Her expertise is in litigation support, forensic accounting, and business appraisals, with a particular focus on probate litigation matters. John Klarowski is a principal in DGC's advisory practice. John has significant experience with financial reporting, forensic accounting, business valuation, and complex business litigation matters. And Sari Zeger is a principal in DGC's private client group. Her focus is on tax planning, estate and gift tax reporting, and wealth transfer planning for high net worth individuals. Before we dive into the presentation, we want to first acknowledge the obvious. And due to the COVID-19 pandemic, you've heard this before, it's an unprecedented time in so many ways. And because of the current economic volatility, saying there's uncertainty ahead is a vast understatement. On top of that, we also are aware that we have an election coming up in November, which further adds to that uncertainty. We want to be clear that while the election may impact some of the issues we will discuss today, we're not making any political statements during this presentation. So with all that being said, Laura, why is this such an important and timely discussion? Thank you, Tom. And thank you everyone for joining us. We're so glad you could uh, be with us today. At DGC, we focus on our clients and helping them plan for the future. Planning can include a business transaction, a home purchase, a move overseas, and ultimately estate planning. What makes now the important time for planning is the convergence of several events, including the election, the current economic environment, market volatility, and the availability to gift tax-free. During 2020, the lifetime gift exemption is $11,580,000 per person or $23,160,000 for a married couple. That means an individual can give away, you know, almost $11.6 million before they would be subject to a 40% gift tax. As with any tax rule, it can be changed. Under current law, the exemptions I mentioned will remain in effect until December 31st, 2025. Thus, you see the cliff that can, is going to happen. When it sunsets at the end of 2025, the gift exemption will go back to where it left off in 2017, adjusted for inflation. It is estimated to be somewhere between six and $7 million at that time. 
Should we see a change in DC in November, we could see that sunset be accelerated into 2021, thus the question mark. And even if we don't see a change this November, there's another election in 2024, and who knows where we're all gonna be at that point. Gifting is a very personal decision that involves individual goals, an assessment of your assets and your spending needs, the desire to create a legacy, and many other factors, including timing. The confluence of COVID-19, the election, the lifetime exemption sunsetting, and the current economic environment make now the time to consider making gifts that are supported by a qualified appraisal to substantiate the asset's value. We can all agree $23 million is a lot of money, and it can be very easy for advisors to say, sure, give away $23 million, but we need to be sensitive to the fact that we're talking about someone's, something that's very precious to our clients. It may be something that they've literally worked their entire lives to accumulate. So we've got to be sensitive to how we frame the discussion with them. I'll talk more later about reporting gifts on gift tax returns and substantiating value, but now I'll turn it over to John to recap where we, what we've been seeing happen with the economy recently and some key economic indicators that can impact gifts value. John? Thanks, Laura. And thanks everyone for joining us. Just wanted to talk a little bit about the COVID-19 stimulus programs that, that I know a lot of you are aware of, but um, obviously these programs have provided an enormous influx of money into the economy. Some of the programs include the CARES Act, the Paytech Protection Program Flexibility Act, and the Main Street Lending Program. If we take a look at some of the numbers behind, behind these programs, you'll see they're quite staggering. There was 300 billion of cash payments to individuals, another 250 billion um, to increase unemployment benefits to individuals. There was $650 billion for the PPP forgivable loans, another 500 billion in aid to large corporations and municipalities, another 150 billion to state and local governments. So as you can see, the numbers are quite staggering. But I wanted to do next was just turn it over to Kim to discuss how, you know, these enormous amounts of money are impacting the economy. Thank you, John. With close to $2 trillion in stimulus money that has been pushed into the economy or propping up the economy uh, over the last six months, there's important data points of where we can see how that's influencing the current economic environment. The Congressional Budget Office issues projections from time to time. In the most recent set of projections, that's where we can see the impact of this stimulus on economic uh, conditions. So this first chart looks at revenue and outlays as a percentage of gross domestic product. Why this chart is important is if I can draw the audience's attention to 2020, where everyone can see this spike. It's important to note that outlays in 2020 are 50% higher than where they were last year in 2019. These outlays represent approximately 32% of this year's GDP. That compared to revenue, which is 16% of GDP in 2020. So the fact that outlays are outpacing revenue by a factor of two is a significant data point for all of us to absorb. More so, despite the fact that outlays are projected to decline as we move past this pandemic that we're in the middle of, even into the future, outlays are still projected to be in excess of the 50-year average. So this is the impacts of COVID and this stimulus are here with us to stay. 
Tom, if you could be kind enough to move to the next slide, because this is where we see the, the interplay of outlays and revenues play itself out. And that is with respect to the federal debt that is held by the public. Again, looking at everything benchmarked against GDP, um, because as the economy has grown over many, many years, benchmark, benchmarking it against GDP gives a more relative perspective. What is interesting, again, because of this interplay of outlays versus revenue, federal debt today is projected to be 98% of this year's GDP. That compared to last year where it was 79%. Many of us have compared the circumstances of today to the Great Recession of a little bit more than a decade ago. But it is important to note that the Great Recession might not be the benchmark by which we need to compare today's pandemic against and the economic impacts of this pandemic. Just before the Great Recession in 2007, federal debt as a percentage of GDP was 35%. So here we are today at 98%. It's quite a significant increase. Furthermore, this, this trend is expected to continue. In 2021, we are expected to have uh, federal debt be 100% of GDP, and it's expected to increase up to 107% in 2023. So as one can see at the right-hand side of this chart, this trend is expected to continue from today over the next decade. That is quite staggering on two points. One, because of the extent, extent that by which this trend is expected to continue. But two, the last time we, we as, as the United States, were in this set of circumstances was back at the end of World War II. In 1946, that was the last time we exceeded 100% federal debt to the GDP. And that was a result of obviously the, the spending that occurred during World War II. The difference being is that that trend was able to uh, decline downward quite quickly because of the expansion in the US economy. Without that type of growth taking place over the next 10 years, that's why we're gonna remain at such a high level. So with that said, I'd like to turn the presentation back to John as he is going to discuss how Wall Street is reacting to many of these economic metrics. Thanks, Kim. So as you can see from the chart here, we're seeing a lot of volatility in the stock market. Um, stock market obviously tanked back in March when, when the pandemic started. Um, that was just after historic highs that were hit in February. We, then we see the, um, the markets come back steadily with, with some choppiness um, to the record highs since then. Uh, the S&P 500 itself surged more than 50% since the bottom in March and, is, and hit record levels again in August. On August 18th, the S&P 500 hit a new record high, which essentially wiped out the coronavirus plunge. An interesting fact about that is that there are only sorry, 126 trading days between the two record peaks in February and August. And that was the fastest ever recovery from a bear market for the S&P. But we're seeing a big disconnect uh, between the market's performance and actual company performance. According to a recent study by FactSet, the S&P 500 companies' revenues are, are expected to drop by an average of 9% year over year. So the key takeaways, I think, for this slide, um, the market's return to record highs is not always smooth. There's a lot of volatility in there. Um, and I actually should point out this chart only goes through the end of August. And as you all know, there was another pretty significant drop in early September. So needless to say, volatility is here to stay. 
at least through the election and probably long after. Second takeaway, you know, we're seeing a lot of optimism from investors. Um, this is very different from the March and April timeframe. Um, this optimism combined with the stimulus programs that we talked about earlier, I think are propping up the market in, in, in economy. Next slide, please, Tom. So we talked about some of the national indicators, macroeconomic factors. I wanted to transition next down to what's happening locally. So as you can see here, Massachusetts has the highest unemployment rate in the country. It's over 16%. Prior to COVID, Massachusetts had consistently been below the national average. Looking at GDP, you can see the enormous contraction both nationwide and here in Mass. And, and, and uh, in fact, Q2 2020 was the worst quarter on record in terms of GDP growth in the US at over 33%. So again, there, there, there appears to be a disconnect between some of these economic indi indicators in the stock market's performance. Next slide, please, Tom. So why is that? I wanted to talk a little bit about uncertainty on Main Street, uncertainty with local businesses. Um, obviously, there's significant uncertainty in the market for consumers, small businesses, large businesses, and just overall activity in the marketplace. In the US and here locally, we're seeing travel bans, we're seeing supply chain disruptions, we're seeing you know, schools and colleges trying to get back to normal. Most are going with some sort of hybrid approach. Some are keeping students and faculty off campus. One example is actually Harvard in Cambridge. They're not allowing any students or faculty back on campus. Um, you can think about the impacts to the local economy, restaurants, hotels, bars, you know, there's just not that, that typical activity, that the influx of activity that they see at each and every fall. So another just topic about what, what's happening locally, it's each sector, each industry, and even within New England here, each of the you know regions within New England um, and the particular companies in each are gonna be impacted differently. I'd say most sectors are gonna be negatively impacted, especially um, with the strong travel and hospitality industry here in Massachusetts, um, restaurants, Pretty much any, any businesses that, that deal with face-to-face -face interactions are gonna be negatively impacted. Um, one recent statistic that I saw was that, um, I think it's almost one quarter of Massachusetts restaurants have not reopened since the pandemic started. But I would like to point out, again, it's, it's not all negative. Um, some sectors are, are neutral or even positively impacted. The easy, the easy ones there, package delivery, online retail, consumer staples, you know, they're all seeing an uptick. Uh, but even with that uptick, it's true that uncertainty remains for them as well. So we've covered the unstable economy, some macroeconomic indicators, we talked about um, local uncertainty. Next, we wanna talk about what you can do about it. I'm gonna hand it off to Sarah to talk about some of the planning opportunities that are available to people. Thank you, John. Uh, I'm just going to touch on some current planning opportunities for people who are interested in estate planning or wealth transfer strategies during this time. Uh, we've already covered the scheduled reduction in lifetime exemptions under the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. No one knows what the tax landscape is going to look like a year from now, and we're all feeling that uncertainty, but there is some good news. The IRS did issue a regulation that any gifting made under the current law will be honored and not subject to future clawback. That means that gifts that are made today in reliance on the current law 
will not be subject to a state or gift tax in the future, even if the exemption amount drops significantly in future years. Um, this is a use it or lose it rule, which means if you don't make the gifts using the higher exemption while it's available, then uh, a reduction in the lifetime exemption represents a missed planning opportunity for people. So um, aside from this regulation, why would now be such a good time to make uh, any sort of uh, substantial gifts? There are two elements at play in the current environment. There's the potential drop in asset values that some people have experienced, and there's also a very, very low interest rate environment. This combination now is a rare window of opportunities. Uh, as estate planners, we use a number of techniques to move future appreciation out of the taxable estate in the most efficient way possible. We generally refer to this as an estate freeze because the taxable estate is being frozen at its current value. If uh, there are a lot of planning techniques which take advantage of low interest rates, but I'm just going to focus on two today because we do have limited time. Uh, next slide, please, Tom. So first, there's the grantor retained annuity trust. Uh, here, you would transfer assets into a trust, and then you would take back a fixed annuity amount. The amount of the gift is determined by using what we know as the section 7520 rate that in turn is based on the applicable federal rate or AFR, which is set by the federal government on a monthly basis. Um, just as a reminder, there's the short term AFR that's for loan periods under three years. Uh, Midterm AFR is for loan periods between three and nine and a long term AFR is any loan over nine years. This is what um, a state freeze technique work, uh, how it looks over time. And we'll move to the next slide, please. So this graph here, this uh, represents roughly how an estate freeze works. So you have the lower line, the green line, and this would be uh, the assumed growth rate of your assets calculated under 7520. This is where it's frozen uh, for state tax purposes effectively. This graph here is based on an assumed 7520 rate of 1%. Actually, right now it's even lower, it's 0.4%. Um, and you can see this is over a 30 year horizon. The growth is fairly flat. On the other hand, uh, if your assets were to grow over time at um, say 4%, then that would be the blue line. And if you were to assume a growth rate at something even higher, say six or 8%, what happens is that blue line will just continue to become steeper. It's the distance between the lower green line and the blue line that represents this future value of your, of your assets that are removed from your estate using an estate freeze technique like a GRAT. So any appreciation over the annuity amount or the green line is what's moved out of your taxable estate. If you think you can beat the growth rate by uh, growth rate projected by that green line, then the estate freeze is successful. Uh, one warning uh, about grants or any grant or retained interest trust is that if you die during the annuity period, then some or all of those assets can be pulled back into your taxable estate. So estate planners often prefer to use what's known as a two-year rolling grant. This minimizes the odds of a grantor dying during the annuity term and it will lock in appreciation in small two-year increments. 
the downside is that, as you can see in the graph, this is really about leveraging the time value of money. So the longer the term, the more potential appreciation can be pulled out of the taxable estate using this technique. Uh, the second strategy I want to talk about leverages reduced fair market values and valuation discounts, which can be, which will be discussed in more detail later, uh, in making a gift of, say, a closely held business into an irrevocable trust. Next slide, please, Tom. So this is an example. Let's just assume for a moment that you have a family-held business that holds commercial real estate, and it was valued at the end of 2019 at $50 million and you were thinking about uh, gifting 20% of that family business into a trust. Based on that math, you would be making a $10 million gift into a trust and using $10 million of your lifetime exemption. Let's say now that due to the current instability in the rental market and reduced timeliness of rent payments, there's support for a lower fair market uh, of your business, and now it's been reduced to $40 million today. Additionally, a business appraiser estimates that a 30% discount is justifiable based on the individual circumstances of your business and the current economic environment. Now a 20% gift to a trust looks like this. Next slide, please, Tom. So, $40 million reduced then by 30%. Now your business has a supported value of $28 million in total. You make a 20% gift into a trust and now instead of a $10 million gift, you have a $5.6 million gift, which is significantly less of your lifetime exemption used and it leaves you room for other estate planning and gifting opportunities. Next slide, please stop. You can further leverage these lower appraised values with lower interest rates by executing a part gift, part sale of a closely held business into the trust. Uh, this technique allows a taxpayer to move a business interest whose value actually can exceed the lifetime exemption available in any given year. To give you an idea of how favorable interest rates are for these transactions right now, uh, the required minimum interest rate on a 30-year note is only 1%, so it's virtually an interest-free long-term loan. Next slide. So, same facts as above, but now we're going to assume the additional sale. You have your $40 million business with the 30% discount, so total value of $28 million you make your 20% gift into the trust. And in addition to that, you're also going to sell an additional 25% in exchange for a $7 million note. You've now effectively transferred 45% of your family business using only $5.6 million of your lifetime exemption and all future appreciation on that 45% portion of the family business will be outside your taxable estate. It's true you still have a $7 million note in your estate instead of the business, but that is growing at the 1% rate that the interest rate has been fixed at, as opposed to um, perhaps an 8% growth rate that you would expect your business to grow at over the next decade or two. It's that spread where the benefit lies here. This technique can be given additional boost by making the trust a dynasty trust, not just for your children, but also for grandchildren and great-grandchildren using the increased generation skipping tax exemption that everybody has right now. 
keeping an asset in a GST exempt trust allows the trust to continue to appreciate, be available for many generations without being exposed to future estate taxes. As I discussed earlier, it's really that time value of money where you see the benefit of this kind of planning. Next slide, please, Tom. So just briefly, while we're talking about generation skipping tax, uh, you do have some other options where even if you aren't interested in making any significant additional gifts, you can still use this time now to do some good generational planning. This is something that even people with basic estate plans can do, for example. If you have a life insurance trust that was set up to benefit your adult children and no GST uh, exemption was allocated at the time, you could take that trust, decant it now into a multi-generational dynasty trust and make a GST allocation in 2020. That's no new gift, no new cash out of your bank account, but you make an excellent use of your GST election, which will likely go down if the estate, uh, if the, if the estate tax exemption goes down, they tend to move in lockstep. Lastly, there's an opportunity for what we call upstream planning, which is where you make a gift to an older generation with those assets being held for future younger generations. This can have some additional income tax benefits as well for people who have low basis assets like real estate that's been held for decades. Yeah, Sari, one comment here. We see this, um, we tend to think of gifting as to kids or to grandkids and really look towards the future, but in a, in a cohesive family environment and having the, the access to the entire family as well, your advisors really can look at the entire family group and it may make sense actually to gift up to your parents and then let some appreciation happen. Maybe they're not gonna use their full lifetime exemptions and then they can gift you know, to the future generations as well. So it's, um, it's an interesting time. Again, we don't just kind of look at one, you know, the client with us, but also, you know, what's available to leverage, as you said, some of these, this opportunity. Yeah, that's, that's a very good point, Laura. Um, so that's, I just wanted to touch on those two very common estate freezing techniques. There are some other techniques that, that people can consider if you move the slide forward, please. Thank you. Uh, for example, uh, there's the charitable lead trust that also leverages these low interest rates. Uh, if you're interested in philanthropy, or you can look into qualified personal residence trusts if you have a home which is poised to accelerate, uh, appreciate rapidly. Lastly, for people who don't feel comfortable with giving away assets right now because perhaps they're worried they might need them in the future, there's the Spousal Lifetime Access Trust, which allows you to still benefit from an estate freeze, but also provides an escape hatch or a way to take back some of that gift in the unlikely event that you need it in later years. So with that, I will hand it off uh, to John and Kim, who are going to discuss in greater detail what they're seeing in terms of business valuations these days. Thanks, Ari. So earlier in the presentation, Kim and I talked a lot about what's going on in the economy, but next we wanted to talk about what does that mean for business valuations? Again, for most businesses, we are seeing lower valuations, but it's not a truism across the board. The lower valuations are based on a, a simple concept, a, a, one of the, the base uh, valuation concepts, which says value at a point in time is based on expected future earnings. That's when you're considering all information that is known and knowable at the valuation date. Therefore, the weaker economic climate, the uncertainty, those are, those are negatively impacting value. So 
So we wanted to frame the discussion next around four factors that are impacting business valuations. First is lower earnings. Second is risk. Third is control or minority considerations. And the fourth is valuation discounts. So let's start with lower earnings. So as we talked about earlier, the government has propped up a lot of businesses in the economy in general with the stimulus programs. The programs aren't gonna last forever. Um, most businesses are facing lower projected cash flows due to less demand or higher operating costs due to running a business during the pandemic. Some businesses, they're gonna need additional financing. They're gonna need to lean on their line of credits just to, just to keep the business humming. Those are gonna further reduce expected cash flows. I do wanna point out again, not all firms are facing lower cash flows. Some are quite insulated from the current disruptions. I'm working on a, an engineering firm valuation right now who gets most of their business from state and local governments. They build highways, bridges, um, drainage ditches, things of that nature. There's a long lead time for these proposals. Projects can last for years. So their project backlog just hasn't been impacted at all really. And even their projections several years out haven't been impacted. John, just real quickly, I want to just interrupt. First, we want to remind everyone you can submit questions in the Q&A section of your Zoom dashboard. So please feel free to do that. And John, I also just going off of that, what about the topic of companies who have not benefited from the pandemic and are facing significant uncertainties with future business? How do you address the uncertainties when estimating future earnings? Good question, Tom. That's actually something I wanted to dig into next, uh, uncertainty in terms of projections. So projections, as anyone knows um, that's done them, they're a critical component of evaluation analysis and they're very difficult to do under any circumstances, never mind the uncertainty that 2020 has brought us. So when preparing financial projections, some questions we're asking ourselves, some questions you're gonna to wanna to ask yourself as a business owner are, when will, the, when will our business stabilize or return to normal? Will there ever be a return to normal? Or are we facing some unknown new normal? Needless to say, forecasting in this environment is extremely difficult. So how do we deal with uncertainty in projections? One technique that I like to use is scenario-based financial projections. Tom, can go to the next slide, thank you. So scenario-based projections. This is a, a technique that I use, a lot of valuation analysts use to prepare projections where there's a lot of uncertainty. You often start with a base case and then build an upside case and a downside case. The base case is probably, you know, the world as you knew it before COVID. A lot of stable businesses get really good at making projections. Um, so, you know, they can be pretty consistent and pretty precise. So again, that's the base case. Um, from there, you can build an upside case, which is the, the pie in the sky scenario. Everything's hitting on all cylinders. Um, customer orders are flying in, um, operating costs are down. So that's the upside case. We also then build out a downside case, which is, you know, in, in today's world, significant disruption from the pandemic. So then we look at those three scenarios and probability weight each of them. That helps us arrive at, um, you know, the best estimate of future performance. And the, the key thing about this is the methodology itself by, by its nature considers the uncertain features that most businesses are facing. I would like to point out, and if we look at this example here, doing this exercise, it often leads to lower valuations. Um, in this simple example, 
our downside case, we, we gave it a, a, you know, about a one third probability of happening. Um, but, but as you can see, the expected cash flow associated with that scenario is about half of, um, you know, the old base case. So um, naturally this is gonna bring the, the valuation down. And just to, to put a real world example on this, I'm, I'm working on another valuation right now. It's um, a paper manufacturer whose product ultimately gets turned into household paper products. Um, when COVID hit in March, you know, they thought they were facing significant disruption. They didn't know if orders were gonna come in, if customers were gonna be able to even pay existing AR. But as it turned out, there was a significant uptick in business throughout the summer um, based on you know, the need for paper products as we're all working from home. Um, since then, business has died down. Not totally, but it's, it's, it's sort of come back to normal or below normal where there would be this time of year. Um, probably because they filled the pipeline so well this summer. So that's where I think this um, scenario-based projection can really help um, because there is an uncertain future for them. Next slide, please, Tom. So we talked about earnings and cash flow. Um, I wanted to move on to the second factor we're going to 